From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The first signs of Parkinson's disease are subtle, but as this disease of the nervous system progresses, it affects everything from speech to movement. Loss of facial animation, reduced blink rate, slowness of movement, reduced arm swing, your stride shortens, you know, you kind of shuffle when you walk. That tremor, usually of the hands, and when it's present in the hands, it's when the hands are relaxed. We'll have the latest on treating Parkinson's from the author of a new book on the disease. Also on the program, retinal detachment can come on without warning. Getting immediate treatment can make the difference between keeping or losing your vision. And keeping kids safe at Halloween. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Parkinson's disease. You know, simply put, it's a, it's a progressive disorder of the nervous system that generally affects movement. It develops gradually, sometimes starting with a barely noticeable tremor of just one hand. We used to call it a pill-rolling tremor. It also causes stiffness and slowing of movement. And as it progresses, your speech can become slurred, and it slurred, did I say that? (laughs) Slurred. And it may become difficult to show any facial expressions. There is no... Unfortunately, no cure for Parkinson's disease. About one million Americans have Parkinson's, including actor Michael J. Fox and boxer Muhammad Ali. They, together, have helped raise awareness of the disease. Here to talk about the latest in treating Parkinson's disease, Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Eric Alskog. Dr. Alskog is author of a new book titled The New Parkinson's Disease Treatment Book, Partnering with Your Doctor to Get the Most from Your Medications. And let me tell you what they say about this. This is from Nathan Sluit, the National Parkinson Foundation. Eric Alskog of the Mayo Clinic is one of the country's leading experts in Parkinson's disease. His Parkinson's disease treatment book is comprehensive and informative and will be a welcome addition to the library of patients with Parkinson's disease and their caregivers. Dr. Eric Alskog, it's been a long time since we've talked about Parkinson's disease. You're a world's expert, so we're glad to have you. Well, I don't know about that, but Tom Tom and Tracy, it's great to be here. Well, if the press release says it, it must be true. This is not the first version of this book, is that correct? Yeah, it's a, it's a revised version of that first book. The first book uh, was written 10 years ago, came out 10 years ago, and uh, I realized over the years that a lot of things had, had changed in the field, and my view of how to how to write a book has changed. My treatment right? strategies didn't change, but how to talk to patients in uh, on paper and in the office has changed too. And I have a more streamlined approach right now. I think over the years I've kind of figured out some things are extraneous, some things are crucial, some medicines are crucial, some medicines really should be put on the back burner. There are a variety of problems in Parkinson's disease that are very different from the usual stuff we used to think about 20 years ago. You know, you mentioned tremor and loss of facial animation. Well, there are a lot of other things too, cognitive impairment, bladder problems, bowel problems, anxiety, depression. These all have different treatments, and the treatments can get very complicated, and there's a vast array of drugs used to treat those, and you have to know how to select the right ones and individualize those. Myth or matter of fact, the highest risk group for getting Parkinson's disease is physicians. Well, that's true. Now, there might be some selection bias because 
it's a lot easier to recognize those symptoms and signs in yourself. But I think that's probably true, and there's been some debate about why that might be. But It's because doctors are so smart, I thought. I, <laughs> there was a, I, I, don't high IQ individuals, aren't they more at risk for Parkinson's disease? Not that all doctors, particularly yeah. orthopedists, are that smart. <laughs> but isn't that is that true? I, I didn't know that. <laughs> I was going to say, no comment. Yeah. Well, if it isn't in the book, it must not be true. <laughs> but no, IQ doesn't have anything to do with it. It's, I don't know about I, IQ putting you at a greater risk for Parkinson's disease. But there are studies that suggest that physicians are at a greater risk. But again, that may be what epidemiologists call surveillance bias. You know, you see it in yourself quicker. You know, if you're just a regular person and you have a little bit, your arm is stiff and doesn't swing when you walk and maybe your stride is short and it's written off to you getting a little older and so on. People, with, people who are trained as physicians, they recognize those signs for what they are. And speaking of getting older, as the population gets older, more people are uh, alive to be diagnosed with Parkinson's. Well, it's true. The older you get, the more likely you are to have Parkinson's disease. And what are the, the usual symptoms that you look for or that patients come in with? The symptoms you use to diagnose are the movement symptoms. So those that would be, you mentioned, loss of facial animation, reduced blink rate, slowness of movement, uh, reduced arm swing, your stride shortens, you know, you kind of shuffle when you walk. Uh, that tremor doesn't occur in everybody, but it's a different tremor than a more common tremor called essential tremor. The tremor of Parkinson's disease is called a resting tremor. So that's a tremor usually of the hands, and when it's present in the hands, it's when the hands are relaxed in the lap or at your side when you're walking. And we call it a pill-rolling tremor? It's, yeah. It's it, like it, you had a pill between your thumb and finger. this was a few years ago, they called yeah, it. Yeah, well, it's still, it's still correct and appropriate, yeah. and, and uh, it, it does look like that sometimes, but not always. It takes on some different forms, but the common feature is in the hand, when you have that tremor of the hand at rest, it's the hand is relaxed at your side or in your lap. You mentioned physicians being at a higher rate for Parkinson's. Are athletes who have multiple concussions and who go th their bodies go through that type of thing, does that leave them at a greater risk of Parkinson's disease? Well, head trauma is a risk factor for Parkinson's disease, but it's like all the risk factors that we've identified, they're relatively modest. They don't account for most of the risk of Parkinson's disease. So, for example, the biggest environmental risk factor would be pesticide exposure, you know, in, in farming. And that triples your risks. You might say, holy right? cats, yeah, triples my risk. That's a big deal. But your risk, if you're a, the lifetime risk in Olmsted County, Minnesota, this county, if you're a guy, is 2% lifetime risk. So if you triple 2%, that's 6%. That means 94% are unaccounted for. And by the by, the risk for gals is 1.3%. So if you triple that, it's about 4%. So you can see that with all the risks that we've identified, then that would be prototypic. They really, it really hasn't translated into us understanding exactly what causes Parkinson's disease. More common in men than women. It is. It's more yeah. common in men. It's, it's not dramatically more common, but it's like 5743, something like that. Now, it always used to be that dopamine was the mainstay of, of, of treatment because that's what the brain was lacking. Is it still true? 
Well, there's no question that the, the major substrate for treating Parkinson's disease is the dopamine deficiency, and all the good drugs replenish dopamine. I mean, that is what they do. But, you know, when I was a young neurologist, that was the be-all and, and end-all of Parkinson's disease. But now we've recognized it's a much more complex disorder. Dopamine is a brain neurotransmitter, and if that's low, that's like turning down the, the governor on those old lawnmowers, you know. But maybe a lot of the audience doesn't remember that, uh, Tom, you and I, if we cut the grass for a buck, you know, they had some of the people's lawnmowers would have governors on them. And if you turned it down, the engine would run, run real slowly. If you turn it up, it would run fast. So that's how the kids always cut the grass with the governor turned up. <laughs> well, the governor in the brain is really dopamine for movement. And if the dopamine levels are low, things slow down, and you get kind of stiff and slow, and the amplitude of movements diminishes, and automatic movements such as blinking and arm swing diminish. And if that governor, dopamine, gets turned up, well, then you start to move more quickly, and if you turn it up too much, then you move too much. So that's the way that, that dopamine works. But it's it was recognized uh, back in about 2000, 2003. There is a well-known neuroanatomist, Heiko Brock, who really put a, a, the, the appropriate spin on Parkinson's disease and argued that Parkinson's disease is really a condition that's far more than dopamine. And mm-hmm. it actually starts years before, probably, years before you get those movement problems. So people that have constipation earlier in life, they're at a significantly greater risk of later getting Parkinson's disease. People who are anxious earlier in life, greater risk of getting Parkinson's disease. People that act out their dreams, called REM sleep behavior disorder, greater risk of getting Parkinson's disease. Loss of smell falls into that category. And these are things that happen well before you come down with the visible problems of Parkinson's disease. And that's just the beginning. Wow. Uh, So interesting. We've got lots more to talk about. Parkinson's disease expert, Dr. J. Eric Alskog, neurologist at Mayo Clinic and author of the new Parkinson's disease treatment book. Time for a short break. When we come back, the roles of nutrition, exercise, and physical therapy in managing the symptoms of Parkinson's. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest, Parkinson's disease expert, Mayo neurologist, Dr. Eric Alskog, author of the book, The New Parkinson's Disease Treatment Book. This is second edition. First one was 10 years or so Ten ago. 10 years ago, that is correct. And this got, has new information. It has. I, I rewrote the book. Some of it I liked. I didn't change that. Some yeah. of it I, I thought needs to be revised and rethought, and so I rewrote major portions of that. So, so this is for, I would presume, uh, people with Parkinson's. It's for their caregivers also, and is it also for physicians? Well, the original book I wrote for, I, I it was targeted to a lay audience. <laughs> But I thought, well, physicians really would probably want to read this. Well, it mm-hmm. turns out they haven't, and they don't. So I actually wrote another book after that, and it, it was the same topics, but it was in a more condensed version with the, you know, what physicians could read more efficiently. But this is a reasonable book for physicians to read also, and basically the content is the stuff that I see in the clinic every day, and most of the stuff that's in there, things patients have taught me. And, no kidding. And, and that's so. These aren't things you find in textbooks. You were saying uh, before we got started that the time that, that you spend with support groups 
has helped to educate you quite a bit. I would imagine that's one of the things that has affected this, uh, that led to the second edition as well. Well, it has, but, you know, Mayo Clinic has been very good to the neurologist. We have adequate time to spend with patients, so we don't give patients the bums rush. I mean, I have an hour quite often to spend with people, and that's kind of useful for, A, for sorting out what the problems are, and things aren't simple in, in the world of neurology and in Parkinson's disease. Plus, I have adequate time to kind of counsel patients and tell them this is what you need to do. So that's very helpful as well, too. When I fr- wrote the first edition of the book, it was very redundant. Fortunately, I had a good editor at Oxford University. Press who crossed off all the redundant stuff, but that's because that's what I do in the clinic. I repeat myself three times, and and you know, it's all second nature to me. But if you're a layperson, this is all novel, all novel stuff. So let's talk a little bit more about treatment. Uh, dopamine is still the mainstay, and you said it's a more complex disease than that. What do you mean by that, and, and how does that make your treatment different than it might have used to have been? Well, it's complex in two ways. So one way it's complex, and I think this sabotages the actual treatment outcomes, is that there are a variety of other medications, which pretty much all work through dopamine, that are are... They have larger revenue streams than levodopa. Levodopa has been off patent for years, so the wholesale price of one tablet of the carbidopa levodopa that I use, 25-100, cents a tablet. Compare that to some of the newer drugs. You know, there's there's one, I won't mention names because may, maybe I'll get into trouble for, for doing that. There's one drug that was purported to slow the progression of Parkinson's disease, of which I am very dubious. $16 a tablet. So you can see revenue streams can easily drive the prescription. Well, that has happened to the detriment of people with Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. So the one drug that you've got to get right is levodopa, carbidopa levodopa. That was introduced, levodopa was introduced in 1969. Carbidopa was added to protect it in the bloodstream so it is not prematurely metabolized. That has been the mainstay of Parkinson's disease treatment for four decades. You got to get that right. So this is to Parkinson's disease treatment, what insulin is to type one diabetes mellitus. So if your blood sugar is 500, you can use all those oral medications, but geez, you better get the insulin dose right because that's what's going to get your blood sugar down to 120. Despite the, the use of of that drug, this disease progresses over time, doesn't it? No matter how good you are at at giving the patient levodopa. Well, it's sort of true. It's like aging, uh, Tom, which you wouldn't know about, but I do. You know, <laughs> stuff wears out, and so when Parkinson's disease is like that, I tell people that 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 you know this isn't something that progresses by leaps and bounds, and so we are all in this for the long haul. And as you get older, the ravages of age get superimposed on that. But I contend that people can do well for many years with adequate treatment. And part of it is, A, I want them to have a good quality of life, so I adjust the doses so they can do that. And second of all, I want them to engage in vigorous exercise because that's the second important factor. And I think that favors the long-term prognosis for Parkinson's No disease. kidding. And does this shorten your life, this disease? Well, it does. So that's that's a concern. Back in the 50s and 60s, before levodopa, people used to die in the mid-60s. Now, in part, that relates to medical science was not up to speed compared to 2015. But in part, it related to the fact that people didn't have any good treatment, and they were confined to wheelchairs and nursing homes and so on after years of Parkinson's disease. Now people are still active for many years after getting Parkinson's disease. And so the longevity rate in Olmsted County, Minnesota, based upon actuarial predictions, is 
three years short of your predicted lifespan. So that's wow, pretty good. Not much. So we talked about exercise. Uh, what else did you want to talk about with regard to treatment? But you said that is extremely important for patients with That's Parkinson's. right. And now it's being increasingly recognized. And there isn't one clinical trial. You, and you can't do this. You know, you could take a group of Parkinson's patients and randomize them. Half would, would vigorously exercise. You get them going to the gym and doing laps or whatever they can do. And then another group, you confine them to a couch potato existence. Well, you know there's going to be a lot of crossover because people told to exercise don't, and some of the people relegated to the sedentary lifestyle, well, the light bulb will go off and think, geez, maybe I should be exercising. So you can never do that study. But there's well over 100 published articles in the medical and scientific literature that argue strongly that aerobic exercise has direct beneficial effects on the brain and may slow the progression of Parkinson's disease. What about nutrition? Yeah, diet. Diet Dietary changes help? Yeah, not so much. Um, If you take levodopa, you need to take that separate from meals because dietary protein conflicts with levodopa. But if you just take... If you take your carbidopa levodopa separate from meals, then you can eat whatever you like. But no snacking. Yeah, but <laughs> but don't get fat. And in our in our current generation, that's a problem. And and the reason for that is if you're carrying a lot of extra weight, it's hard to be active and hard to exercise. But there's nothing more complicated than that. And is where is research going? What what direction is it heading? Yeah. Well, the current research. You know, it's kind of moving slowly. The, the Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder. So what is neurodegenerative? Well, there's a whole host of neurodegenerative conditions that the lay audience recognizes. Alzheimer's disease, ALS, Parkinson's disease. And those are conditions that start in midlife and later life, and they slowly progress. And they're, and they're system degeneration. So the whole brain doesn't degenerate, just certain portions. And for each of those, when you look at the brains of those affected people under the microscope, like Alzheimer's disease, there's typically a protein that you see under the microscope. Now, you can't identify it with a microscopic evaluation, but you can with biochemical analyses. So in Alzheimer's disease, it's beta amyloid 42 in the tau protein. In Parkinson's disease, it's a protein called alpha-synuclein. And how we arrived at that recognition, uh, it's a complex story, but... Things you see under the microscope in Parkinson's disease, we've known for a 100 years that there are these proteinaceous inclusions in certain brain cells in Parkinson's disease. And those Lewy body inclusions, they're called Lewy bodies, are chock full of alpha-synuclein. There are rare mutations in alpha-synuclein genes, very, very rare. But when they occur, people get Parkinson's disease. It's the alpha-synuclein mutation that is associated with Parkinson's disease. So 99.5% of people with Parkinson's disease do not have an alpha-synuclein mutation. But when they do, that is sufficient to cause what looks exactly like Parkinson's disease. Wow, we've learned a lot. If you want to know any more, you can get the book, The New Parkinson's Disease Treatment Book by J. Eric Alscog, neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Good. Thanks for asking me. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Do you know what happens when you have a heart attack? I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
Heart attacks happen when fatty deposits called plaques in your arteries get disrupted and form clots that block blood flow. Boston University researchers found a way to look inside arteries with special probes to see if plaques are at high risk of causing issues. More research is needed. Now, a diagnosis of breast cancer is never easy. In addition to dealing with the shock, a patient has to digest an overwhelming amount of information. Will I need chemo? What about surgery? What does stage mean? Etc. Mayo Clinic is testing an iPad app to see if it'll make the journey a little easier. And what the iPad intended um, was to take all that content and deliver it in a personalized fashion to the patient so she'd have it in her own hands at the time she was ready to read it. Mayo Clinic breast cancer specialist Dr. Sandhya Pruthi hopes the iPad app will prove to be valuable to patients. Are meat and seafood safe to refreeze after being thawed? Yes, according to the USDA, if there are still visible ice crystals or it's 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Mayo Clinic dietitian Lisa Dirk says when it comes to safely thawing food, the refrigerator is the best option. She says you can thaw food using the microwave or running water techniques, but remember, these options then must be cooked immediately, never refrozen. Now remember, smaller portions will thaw faster. Now, from freezer bags to zip lines. The popularity of this endorphin-producing activity has reached new heights in recent years. New research shows injuries from zip lining have dramatically increased. Broken bones, sprains, and bruises top the most common injuries. Researchers say minimize your risks by choosing a facility with well-trained staff. Follow all posted rules, wear proper safety equipment like harnesses, helmets, and gloves, and never use a homemade or backyard zip line. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It can actually be a frightening experience. One minute, your vision seems fine. The next, you're seeing sudden flashes of light in one eye. A shadow or curtain forms over part of your field of vision, and you start seeing floaters, bits of debris or detritus gliding across your line of vision. These are the symptoms of retinal detachment, and they indicate a medical emergency. Without immediate treatment, a detached retina can lead to a total loss of vision. Here to talk about retinal detachment, what causes it, how it's treated, Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bakri. Good to have you. Thank you, Tom. A retinal detachment just sounds terrifying. Is there a lot of pain involved or is it just confusion because your your brain doesn't know what your eyes are doing? So it's it can be a frightening experience. It's completely painless, but when you have a painless loss of vision or you feel a curtain coming down in front of your eyesight, that can be quite frightening. And the retina, that's like the film and the camera. It's uh, in the back of your eyeball, and it collects the light, which then goes through your optic nerve to your brain, right? But it's like the film and the camera. It's exactly The that. back of your eye. And when you have a retinal detachment, what it detaches from what? So it detaches from the eye wall. Um, the retina is stuck to the eye wall um, by a number of um, forces, and when you have a tear in the retina um, that occurs due to the vitreous jelly pulling on the retina, 
um, some of the vitreous jelly goes through the tear and just peels off the retina. Oh, so you start with a tear, and then the jelly, which is inside the eyeball itself, uh, squeezes, squishes inside the the tear, and then that detaches the retina. So you always have a tear first? There are different kinds of retinal detachment, but the most common that affects people is one due to a retinal tear. So it's very important to get any retinal tear surrounded by laser treatment to prevent that vitreous jelly um, going back there to detach the retina. What usually causes that tear, Dr. Bakary? We wish you Aging. Knew. Is that the mi- Aging. <laughs> Aging. Again. <laughs> See, that's a million-dollar question. I thought, is it, I thought it was an accident. Like, is something, is that for younger people? So it, it can be due to trauma. Okay. Um, when you have a retinal detachment in somebody young, then, yes, it can be due to trauma. But in the um, older population, it's due to aging of the vitreous jelly, changing in composition, and then it may gradually pull off the retina, in most cases without forming a retinal tear, but in some cases it pulls off hard and uh, forms the retinal tear. Are there usually symptoms of a tear before you actually get the detachment? So, yes, when patients um, have a retinal tear, usually they experience flashing lights or floaters and um, sometimes um, a trickle um, of blood in, in their vision if if the uh, retina tore over a blood vessel. I know that mm. people have those floaters all the time, you know, throughout their day. But this is, is it a different kind of floater? Is it one that doesn't disappear? It just kind of hangs around or what, what's the difference? Yes, it, w- it would be a sudden rush of flies um, <laughs> in the front of your vision. All right, you talked about uh, age being the primary risk factor. What else? Anybody else? I mean, a family history of retinal detachment or tears, would that increase your risk? What, what else might be a risk factor? So um, there are a few things. So um, sometimes previous eye surgery can increase um, the chance of a retinal detachment. Um, also, there are some hereditary um, vitreous and retinal diseases um, that can predispose you to getting um, tears in the retina. And some of those are familial. Now, this is a medical emergency? Absolutely. And why? Because if we don't repair the retina, then the eye attempts to repair it and forms scar tissue that lines the retina. And then the retina stiffens up, and um, while we could peel off the scar tissue, once it's started, it, it goes through cycles of growth. And so we prefer to um, repair it before any scar tissue starts. So you want to tack that thing back right away. Yes. And how do you do that? So there are multiple options. And the option we choose depends on the configuration of the retinal detachment, but also on the patient. So at its very simplest, uh, one option is an in-office procedure that we call a pneumatic retinopexy. And to do that, we... Um, laser around that retinal tear with either um, a laser treatment or we freeze it with um, cryotherapy and then we put a gas bubble in the eye to attach the retina. Now there are other options that involve going to the operating room and there are two major types of surgery. One is called a vitrectomy and the other is called a scleral buckle. And so basically the vitrectomy involves removal of all the vitreous jelly from the eye smoothing out of the retina with um, a heavy liquid that we temporarily place in the eye, um, doing a laser around that retinal tear, and then removing that heavy liquid and placing um, a gas bubble in the eye. 
Now, you put the gas bubble in the eye to hold the retina in place while it heals. Is that correct? Yes. So the gas bubble floats, and um, that is why you hear that often we recommend that the patient position their head in a certain direction, um, whether it's face down or to the side, because the goal is to get that gas bubble to float and stick down the retina. So you spend your day face down or off to the side so that the gas bubble presses against the retina so that it heals correctly, and then the gas bubble gets taken out? So the gas bubble actually dissolves by itself over a period of four to six weeks, and the eye makes fluid to replace it. Sometimes you might hear that a silicon oil bubble is placed. In severe cases of retinal detachment, uh, that's what we do, and the oil needs to be surgically removed several months later. Now, I would assume that after you've repaired this, you have to go in periodically to make sure that it stays repaired and you don't get a recurrence. How common is uh, a recurrence? If you've had one retinal tear, are you more likely to get another one? And are you more likely to get it in the opposite eye? So the um, chance of you getting a retinal detachment in the opposite eye is about 10%. Hmm. Um, The chance of the retina detaching again is approximately 10% as well. Um, But Obviously, it depends if you have one tear and it's repaired early and you don't form scar tissue, you're at a much lower risk than someone who comes in many weeks later with multiple retinal tears and scar tissue. You know, those, that chance of recurrence is much higher than 10%. But on average, I would say 10%. If this is age-related, if that's the main reason, is there also a genetic component Yes, there are certain hereditary um, retinal diseases and vitreous diseases, such as Stickler's syndrome, for example, that predisposes patients to getting multiple retinal tears all around the eye. Does it ever get to the point where either the repair doesn't work and uh, the, the patient loses vision or even can go blind in that eye? I think rarely these days. I mean, if, if patients are diagnosed early and they're treated early, um, you know, patients can even have, you know, multiple surgeries and still do well. Um, but yes, there are people who present late and uh, we try, but sometimes we, um, we can't fix it. But that's extremely rare these days. Good to hear, because this is something none of us want. And the only way to prevent it, it sounds like, is not to get any older. And that doesn't work so well. So other, anything else we could do to prevent retinal detachment, particularly if we have a family history? I think if you have a family history, then it's important to get um, your eyes checked regularly. We've been talking about retinal detachment with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist, Dr. Sophie Bakri. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, it's Halloween, and we'll have some tips for keeping your trick-or-treaters safe. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. You're very spooky. And I'm Tracy McRae. <laughs> well, trick-or-treating time is up on us. It's Halloween, and whether you're a parent or a little goblin who's planning to head out for treats and do your tricks, or you just want to make sure that you provide a safe environment for trick-or-treaters when they come calling, we thought we would get some advice from an expert on Halloween safety. Here with some tips on making Halloween a safe experience is Dr. Donald Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is a surgeon and trauma specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Jenkins. Well, thank you very much. 
very much for having me, Dr. Shives. This is a great, uh, great show you have here. Are you uh, on Halloween weekend? I am on call all so day and night, lo- Saturday yeah. night. <laughs> what happens in the ER on Halloween? Unfortunately, uh, between now and then, we see a lot of children with uh, cut hands, digits from oh, carving jack-o'-lanterns. Mm-hmm. Oh, shoot. Must have to be very, very careful. Children have to be very carefully supervised uh, during that uh, jack-o'-lantern carving. I always feel like when I was a kid, of course, nothing could hurt me, so I wasn't worried about getting cut then. But now as an adult, I think I'm going to ruin my kid's Halloween because I'm going to cut off my finger, and then, then Halloween will be ruined for them. It must be parents that come in as well. Parents are there, too. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I, that, that has never happened to me, but uh, it does happen. So are there any any hints, any things that if you could uh, talk to parents uh, before they carve the pumpkin with their child, what, what hints would you give them? What tips would you? Well, I'll tell you that the uh, those uh, little convenient kits that they've come up with where you uh, use a more blunt object to penetrate the pumpkin before carving with a small serrated blade made specifically for this, that, that's really good. And they work up, really well. They do. They, they do, work. They yeah. work perfectly well. Children have a. They can. They can use that. When you bring out the big butcher knife and are trying to <laughs> poke that, that's that's a disaster. It's too bad we're not on TV. That's a bad sign. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, we got. How about uh, on pumpkins? Is it okay to put a candle in your in your pumpkin, or do you see any injuries from those? So it's okay to put a candle in there, but uh, really the adults should be lighting it. Uh, you want to light it through a hole, you know, at the in the side, not to try to light it from on top and, and put it in. The cautionary uh, note here is that those kids. Costumes are incendiary. They are not made of usual Still? cloth. They're Even very... after all this time, I thought that was the 60s and 70s. No, they're they are they are very cheaply manufactured, and uh, it doesn't take doesn't take long to to get a burn. So we want to avoid burns. We want to avoid costumes around flames, uh, candles indoors. You have to be very cautious, especially for the kids who haven't been around this before. This is their mm-hmm. first walking around Halloween experience. They're drawn to that jack o' lantern, and they want to go up and touch it and see it and look at it. And so you just have to be cautious about. Now, how would you like to have to tell somebody you? Set your kid on fire. I mean, how bad would that be? Are you seeing lots of burns on Halloween? The, the burns typically are so minor that they don't come in, okay. but that doesn't mean the kids don't get burned. Get one of those little battery-operated flicker candles. Won't burn anybody. Oh yeah, I like that idea. All right, let's talk about the goblins. Um, and I believe I read somewhere that kids are twice as likely to be hit by a car on Halloween as any other time of the year. Does that, that sound right? It, it absolutely is true. They are uncontrollable. They get that first free bit of candy, can't believe that this is going on, that people just give them candy. <laughs> they cannot wait to get to the next door. Kids are falling in the yard. They're tripping over their costume. Uh, they are running across the street, and uh, parents really have to keep close supervision on them. And if you're one of those houses that's giving up full-size candy bars, you, you should... Take some care because once the word gets out, the kids go bonkers running across the street in front of moving traffic. They won't care. I, I haven't heard of any stampedes, but okay, I guess that would be another, another have, do you Do you have any uh, tips for kids when it comes to their costumes and what well, they should or should not do? Yeah, so masks are a problem. Uh, because it limits vision. So even if it, you ha- do have a child who's smart enough to look left and right, it's possible they might not see the car if they're looking out through little tiny eye holes. The length of the costume. And so tripping over tripping. it, yep, that, that, that becomes an issue. Many of the costumes today are made with reflective materials on them so that, you know, drivers can better see those, those children. Unfortunately, probably on Saturday night, we'll be in winter coat mode and putting coats 
over the costume, and the coats typically won't have that reflective thing. Now, the listeners in Florida right now or in Arizona are wondering, what the heck are you talking about? But listen, sometimes in the Midwest, it is snowing on Halloween, and you have to dress accordingly. Been there. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. we have. And so I, I would say that the other thing is flashlights. Kids love flashlights. They play with flashlights and you know all the time. Give them a flashlight on Halloween. That's going to really help to keep them safe too. There are some costumes that are, that are particularly dangerous, aren't there? And I saw on the internet one this year uh, because it spooked a lot of mothers. And it it's a costume. It's all black. Just and the it's black called, morph suit. Yeah, I'm invisible. <laughs> it's the name of the of the suit. From I head mean, to toe. Nothing worse you could wear, right? No, no, nothing worse you could wear. Uh, you really have to have reflective garb on. If your child has to have that costume, make sure they have those uh, either the flashlight or those uh, shoes that have the sure. lights that light up and you know sparkle every every step they take. Bells, when, whistles, lights. Well, I was yeah. going to say when they're not paying attention, put reflective tape skeleton all over the backside of that thing, so that at least half of them you can see. Well, you I, brought us some information about the teal pumpkin. Tell us about that. So I did. This is a, a national uh, project that is uh, launched for. Last year was the first time, and it's from the Food Allergy Research and Education Teal Pumpkin Project. And the notion here is that there are many children who have allergies to nuts. A lot of Halloween candy has nuts Mm -hmm. in it. If you are a nut-free house because you have taken that tack or you have people in your home with those allergies, then the symbol to know that it's safe for your children with nut allergies to go to a home and accept a treat from that home... Uh, would be this international symbol of a teal pumpkin on the porch. The fear I have is that because they sell those teal pumpkins at the store, if you don't realize the significance of the teal pumpkin and you just buy it because it looks neat and nice and you're handing out candy with nuts in it, that that could have have a negative effect. So I would caution people, just be really careful. I would ask the question, did is this a teal pumpkin nut safe house before taking those candies from that? This place. was all brought about by the Teal Pumpkin Growers Association, Tom, that they thought they had to come up with a way to sell more teal pumpkins. Did you know that? No, I didn't. No, and it's I've not never true. even seen a teal pumpkin, but it's I'm going to look true. out for them now. <laughs> okay. Now, I have a quick question about adults because they tend to party a little bit on, uh, on Halloween. And so my question is. Um, I have heard, everybody's heard of somebody going to the emergency room who's drunk too much or drunk Drano or or whatever, and they have their stomach pumped. Uh, And that's a term that I never understood, never saw. And you don't really uh, pump anybody's stomach, do you? And you used to use Epicac to make them vomit, but you don't do that anymore either, right? Correct. So the, so the Epicac is uh, troublesome in that patient population because they're so drunk you want to get rid of the stomach contents mm-hmm. and uh, they're not awake enough to be able to protect their airway. So we don't use Epicac and have them vomit. We do have a very large bore tube we can put down the back of your throat and suck out all the contents of your stomach. So if you've overdosed on some kind of pills or there's a bunch of alcohol and you're already passed out, uh, that's how people die of what is commonly known as alcohol poisoning, where you've gotten so intoxicated you are now passed out and there's still a large volume of alcohol in your stomach that can be absorbed through your bloodstream, cause respiratory depression, stop breathing. And, yeah, it's terrible. More often what we see are later on Halloween evening, coming home from the Halloween parties where the adults go, uh, people being hit by automobiles and people getting into car crashes. So drinking and driving on Halloween, drinking and driving any day, Mm -hmm. bad combination. Get a designated driver. 
All right. A lot of good tips. Uh, that's good to know. They actually can pump your stomach. General <laughs> Surgeon Trauma Specialist, Dr. Donald Jenkins, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.